This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Drinkwater in Madison, Wisconsin, November 15, 2007. The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe, Volume 2, Chapter 5, Part A. Dark power, with shuddering, meek-submitted thought, Be mine to read the visions old, Which thy awakening bards have told, And, lest they meet my blasted view, Hold each strange tale devoutly true. Collins, Ode to Fear Emily was recalled from a kind of slumber, Into which she had at length sunk, By a quick knocking at her chamber door. She started up in terror, for Montagny and Count Morano instantly came to her mind. But, having listened in silence for some time, and recognizing the voice of Annette, she rose and opened the door. "'What brings you hither so early?' said Emily, trembling excessively. She was unable to support herself, and sat down on the bed. "'Dear Mademoiselle,' said Annette, "'do not look so pale.' I am quite frightened to see you. Here is a fine bustle below stairs, all the servants running to and fro, and none of them fast enough. Here is a bustle, indeed, all of a sudden, and nobody knows for what. Who is below besides them? said Emily. Annette, do not trifle with me. Not for the world, mademoiselle. I would not trifle for the world, but one cannot help making one's remarks. And there is a signor, in such a bustle as I never saw him before. And he has sent me to tell you, ma'am, to get ready immediately. Good God, support me, cried Emily, almost fainting. Count Morano is below then? No, mademoiselle, he is not below that I know of, replied Annette. Only his excellenza sent me to desire you would get ready directly to leave Venice for that the gondolas would be at the steps of the canal in a few minutes. But I must hurry back to my lady, who is just at her wit's end, and knows not which way to turn for haste. Explain, Annette, explain the meaning of all this before you go, said Emily, so overcome with surprise and timid hope that she had scarcely breath to speak. Nay, mademoiselle, that is more than I can do. I only know that the signor is just come home in a very ill humor, that he has had us all called out of our beds and tells us we are all to leave Venice immediately. Is Count Morano to go with the signor? said Emily. And whither are we going? I know neither, ma'am, for certain, but I heard Ludovico say something about going after we get to terra firma to the signor's castle among some mountains that he talked of. The Apennine, said Emily eagerly. Oh, then I have little to hope. That is the very place, ma'am. But cheer up, and do not take it so much to heart, and think what a little time you have to get ready in, and how impatient the signor is. Holy Saint Mark, I hear the oars on the canal, and now they come nearer. And now they are dashing at the steps below. 
it is the gondola, sure enough. Annette hastened from the room, and Emily prepared for this unexpected flight, as fast as her trembling hands would permit, not perceiving that any change in her situation could possibly be for the worse. She had scarcely thrown her books and clothes into her traveling trunk, when, receiving a second summons, she went down to her aunt's dressing room, where she found Montigny impatiently reproving his wife for delay. He went out soon after to give some further orders to his people, and Emily then inquired the occasion of this hasty journey, but her aunt appeared to be as ignorant as herself, and to undertake the journey with more reluctance. The family at length embarked, but neither Count Morano nor Cavini was of the party. Somewhat revived by observing this, Emily, when the gondolieri dashed their oars in the water and put off from the steps of the portico, felt like a criminal who receives a short reprieve. Her heart beat yet lighter when they emerged from the canal into the ocean, and lighter still when they skimmed past the walls of St. Mark without having stopped to take up Count Morano. The dawn now began to tint the horizon, and to break upon the shores of the Adriatic. Emily did not venture to ask any questions of Montigny, who sat for some time in gloomy silence, and then rolled himself up in his cloak as if to sleep, while Madame Montigny did the same. But Emily, who could not sleep, undrew one of the little curtains of the gondola and looked out upon the sea. The rising dawn now enlightened the mountain tops of Friuli, but their lower sides and the distant waves that rolled at their feet were still in deep shadow. Emily, sunk in tranquil melancholy, watched the strengthening light spreading upon the ocean, shewing successively Venice and her islets and the shores of Italy, along which boats with their pointed Latin sails began to move. The gondolieri were frequently hailed, at this early hour, by the market people, as they glided towards Venice, and the lagoon soon displayed a gay scene of innumerable little barks, passing from terra firma with provisions. Emily gave a last look to that splendid city, but her mind was then occupied by considering the probable events that awaited her in the scenes to which she was removing and with conjectures concerning the motive of this sudden journey. It appeared, upon calmer consideration, that Montigny was removing her to his secluded castle because he could there, with more probability of success, attempt to terrify her into obedience, or that, should its gloomy and sequestered scenes fail of this effect, her forced marriage with the Count could there be solemnized with the secrecy which was necessary to the honor of Montigny. The little spirit which this reprieve had recalled now began to fail, and, when Emily reached the shore, her mind had sunk into all its former depression. Montigny did not embark on the Brenta, but pursued his way in carriages across the country, towards the Apennine during which journey his manner to Emily was so particularly severe that this alone would have confirmed her late conjecture, 
had any such confirmation been necessary. Her senses were now dead to the beautiful country through which she traveled. Sometimes she was compelled to smile at the naivete of Annette in her remarks on what she saw, and sometimes to sigh, as a scene of peculiar beauty recalled Valancourt to her thoughts, who was indeed seldom absent from them, and of whom she could never hope to hear in the solitude to which she was hastening. At length the travelers began to ascend among the Eponine, the immense pine forests which, at that period, overhung these mountains, and between which the road wound, excluded all view but of the cliffs aspiring above, except that, now and then, an opening through the dark woods allowed the eye a momentary glimpse of the country below. The gloom of these shades, their solitary silence, except when the breeze swept over their summits, the tremendous precipices of the mountains that came partially to the eye, each assisted to raise the solemnity of Emily's feelings into awe. She saw only images of gloomy grandeur or of dreadful sublimity around her. Other images, equally gloomy and equally terrible, gleamed on her imagination. She was going, she scarcely knew whither, under the dominion of a person, from whose arbitrary disposition she had already suffered so much, to marry, perhaps, a man who possessed neither her affection or esteem, or to endure, beyond the hope of succor, whatever punishment revenge, and that Italian revenge, might dictate. The more she considered what might be the motive of the journey, the more she became convinced that it was for the purpose of concluding her nuptials with Count Morano, with that secrecy which her resolute resistance had made necessary to the honor, if not the safety, of Montigny. From the deep solitudes into which she was emerging, and from the gloomy castle of which she had heard some mysterious hints, her sick heart recoiled in despair, and she experienced that, though her mind was already occupied by peculiar distress, it was still alive to the influence of new and local circumstance. Why else did she shudder at the idea of this desolate castle? As the travelers still ascended among the pine forests, steep rose over steep, the mountains seemed to multiply as they went, and what was the summit of one eminence proved to be only the base of another. At length they reached a little plain, where the drivers stopped to rest the mules, whence a scene of such extent and magnificence opened below as drew even from Madame Montigny a note of admiration. Emily lost, for a moment, her sorrows in the immensity of nature. Beyond the amphitheater of mountains that stretched below, whose tops appeared as numerous almost as the waves of the sea, and whose feet were concealed by the forests, extended the Campagna of Italy, where cities and rivers and woods and all the glow of cultivation were mingled in gay confusion. The Adriatic bounded the horizon, into which the Po and the Brenta, after winding through the whole extent of the landscape, poured their fruitful waves. 
Emily gazed long on the splendors of the world she was quitting, of which the whole magnificence seemed thus given to her sight, only to increase her regret on leaving it. For her, Valancourt alone was in that world. To him alone her heart turned, and for him alone fell her bitter tears. From this sublime scene the travelers continued to ascend among the pines, till they entered a narrow pass of the mountains, which shut out every feature of the distant country, and, in its stead, exhibited only tremendous crags, impending over the road, where no vestige of humanity, or even of vegetation, appeared, except here and there the trunk and scathed branches of an oak, that hung nearly headlong from the rock, into which its strong roots had fastened. This pass, which led into the heart of the Apennine, at length opened today, and a scene of mountains stretched in long perspective, as wild as any the travelers had yet passed. Still vast pine forests hung upon their base, and crowned the ridgy precipice that rose perpendicularly from the vale, while, above, the rolling mists caught the sunbeams and touched their cliffs with all the magical coloring of light and shade. The scene seemed perpetually changing, and its features to assume new forms, as the winding road brought them to the eye in different attitudes, while the shifting vapors, now partially concealing their minuter beauties, and now illuminating them with splendid tints, assisted the illusions of the sight. Though the deep valleys between these mountains were, for the most part, clothed with pines, sometimes an abrupt opening presented a perspective of only barren rocks, with a cataract flashing from their summit among broken cliffs, till its waters, reaching the bottom, foamed along with unceasing fury. And sometimes pastoral scenes exhibited their green delights in the narrow vales, smiling amid surrounding horror. There, herds and flocks of goats and sheep, browsing under the shade of hanging woods, and the shepherd's little cabin, reared on the margin of a clear stream, presented a sweet picture of repose. Wild and romantic as were these scenes, their character had far less of the sublime that had those of the Alps, which guard the entrance of Italy. Emily was often elevated, but seldom felt those emotions of indescribable awe which she had so continually experienced in her passage over the Alps. Towards the close of day, the road wound into a deep valley. Mountains, whose shaggy steeps appeared to be inaccessible, almost surrounded it. To the east, a vista opened, that exhibited the Apennine in their darkest horrors, and the long perspective of retiring summits rising over each other, their ridges clothed with pines, exhibited a stronger image of grandeur than any Emily had yet seen.
The sun had just sunk below the top of the mountain she was descending, whose long shadow stretched athwart the valley, but his sloping rays, shooting through an opening of the cliffs, touched with a yellow gleam the summits of the forest, that hung upon the opposite steeps, and streamed in full splendor upon the towers and battlements of a castle, that spread its extensive ramparts along the brow of a precipice above. The splendor of these illumined objects was heightened by the contrasted shade which involved the valley below. There, said Montigny, speaking for the first time in several hours, is Udolpho. Emily gazed with melancholy awe upon the castle, which she understood to be Montagny's. For, though it was now lighted up by the setting sun, the gothic greatness of its features and its moldering walls of dark gray stone rendered it a gloomy and sublime object. As she gazed, the light died away on its walls, leaving a melancholy purple tint which spread deeper and deeper, as the thin vapor crept up the mountain, while the battlements above were still tipped with splendor. From those, too, the rays soon faded, and the whole edifice was invested with the solemn duskiness of evening. Silent, lonely, and sublime, it seemed to stand the sovereign of the scene, and to frown defiance on all who dared to invade its solitary reign. As the twilight deepened, its features became more awful in obscurity, and Emily continued to gaze, till its clustering towers were alone seen, rising over the tops of the woods, beneath whose thick shade the carriages soon after began to ascend. The extent and darkness of these tall woods awakened terrific images in her mind, and she almost expected to see Banditi start up from under the trees. At length, the carriages emerged upon a heathy rock, and soon after reached the castle gates, where the deep tone of the portal bell, which was struck upon to give notice of their arrival, increased the fearful emotions that had assailed Emily. While they waited till the servant within should come to open the gates, she anxiously surveyed the edifice. But the gloom that overspread it allowed her to distinguish little more than a part of its outline with the massy walls of the ramparts, and to know that it was vast ancient and dreary. From the parts she saw, she judged of the heavy strength and extent of the whole. The gateway before her, leading into the courts, was of gigantic size, and was defended by two round towers, crowned by overhanging turrets, embattled where instead of banners, now waved long grass and wild plants that had taken root among the moldering stones, and which seemed to sigh as the breeze rolled past. 
over the desolation around them. The towers were united by a curtain, pierced and embattled also, below which appeared the pointed arch of a huge portcullis, surmounting the gates. From these, the walls of the ramparts extended to the other towers, overlooking the precipice, whose shattered outline, appearing on a gleam that lingered in the west, told of the ravages of war. Beyond these, all was lost in the obscurity of evening. While Emily gazed with awe upon the scene, footsteps were heard within the gates, and the undrawing of bolts, after which an ancient servant of the castle appeared, forcing back the huge folds of the portal to admit his lord. As the carriage wheels rolled heavily under the portcullis, Emily's heart sunk, and she seemed as if she was going into her prison. The gloomy court into which she passed served to confirm the idea, and her imagination, ever awake to circumstance, suggested even more terrors than her reason could justify. Another gate delivered them into the second court, grass-grown and more wild than the first, where, as she surveyed through the twilight its desolation, its lofty walls overtopped with briony moss and nightshade, and the embattled towers that rose above, long-suffering and murder came to her thoughts. One of those instantaneous and unaccountable convictions, which sometimes conquer even strong minds, impressed her with its horror. The sentiment was not diminished when she entered an extensive gothic hall, obscured by the gloom of evening, which a light, glimmering at a distance through a long perspective of arches, only rendered more striking. As the servant brought the lamp nearer, partial gleams fell upon the pillars and the pointed arches, forming a strong contrast with their shadows that stretched along the pavement and the walls. The sudden journey of Montigny had prevented his people from making any other preparations for his reception than could be had in the short interval since the arrival of the servant who had been sent forward from Venice. And this, in some measure, may account for the air of extreme desolation that everywhere appeared. The servant who came to light Montagny bowed in silence, and the muscles of his countenance relaxed with no symptom of joy. Montagny noticed the salutation by a slight motion of his hand, and passed on, while his lady, following, and looking round with a degree of surprise and discontent, which she seemed fearful of expressing, and Emily, surveying the extent and grandeur of the hall in timid wonder, approached a marble staircase. The arches here opened to a lofty vault, from the center of which hung a tripod lamp, which a servant was hastily lighting and the rich fretwork of the roof, a corridor leading into several upper apartments, and a painted window, stretching nearly from the pavement to the ceiling of the hall, became gradually visible. 
having crossed the foot of the staircase and passed through an anteroom, they entered a spacious apartment, whose walls, wainscoted with black larch wood, the growth of the neighboring mountains, were scarcely distinguishable from darkness itself. Bring more light, said Montigny as he entered. The servant, setting down his lamp, was withdrawing to obey him, when Madame Montigny, observing that the evening air of this mountainous region was cold, and that she should like a fire, Montigny ordered that wood might be brought. While he paced the room with thoughtful steps, and Madame Montigny sat silently on a couch at the upper end of it, waiting till the servant returned, Emily was observing the singular solemnity and desolation of the apartment. Viewed as it now was, by the glimmer of the single lamp, placed near a large Venetian mirror, that duskily reflected the scene, with the tall figure of Montigny passing slowly along, his arms folded, and his countenance shaded by the plume that waved in his hat. From the contemplation of this scene, Emily's mind proceeded to the apprehension of what she might suffer in it, till the remembrance of Valancourt, far, far distant, came to her heart and softened it into sorrow. A heavy sigh escaped her, but, trying to conceal her tears, she walked away to one of the high windows that opened upon the ramparts, below which spread the woods she had passed in her approach to the castle. But the nightshade sat deeply on the mountains beyond, and their indented outline alone could be faintly traced on the horizon, where a red streak yet glimmered in the west. The valley between was sunk in darkness. The scene within, upon which Emily turned on the opening of the door, was scarcely less gloomy. The old servant, who had received them at the gates, now entered, bending under a load of pine branches, while two of Montigny's Venetian servants followed with lights. "'Your Excellenza is welcome to the castle,' said the old man, as he raised himself from the hearth, where he had laid the wood. "'It has been a lonely place a long while.' But you will excuse it, Signor, knowing we had but short notice. It is near two years, come next feast of St. Mark, since your Excellenza was within these walls. You have a good memory, old Carlo, said Montigny. It is thereabout, and how hast thou contrived to live so long? A well a day, sir, with much ado. The cold winds that blow through the castle in winter are almost too much for me, and I thought sometimes of asking your Excellenza to let me leave the mountains and go down into the lowlands, but I don't know how it is. I am loth to quit these old walls I have lived in so long. Well, how have you gone on in the castle since I left it? said Montigny. Why, much as usual, signor, only it wants a good deal of repairing. There is the north tower, some of the bandlements have tumbled down, 
and had liked one day to have knocked my poor wife, God rest her soul, on the head. Your Excellenza must know. Well, but the repairs, interrupted Montagny. I the repairs, said Carlo. A part of the roof of the great hall has fallen in, and all the winds from the mountains rushed through it last winter, and whistled through the whole castle so that there was no keeping oneself warm, be where one would. There my wife and I used to sit shivering over a great fire in one corner of the little hall, ready to die with cold, and... But there are no more repairs wanted, said Montagny impatiently. O oh Lord, your Excellenza, yes. The wall of the rampart has tumbled down in three places. Then the stairs, that lead to the west gallery, have been a long time so bad that it is dangerous to go up them, and the passage leading to the great oak chamber that overhangs the north rampart. One night last winter I ventured to go there myself, and your Excellenza. Well, well, enough of this, said Montagny with quickness. I will talk more with thee tomorrow. The fire was now lighted. Carlo swept the hearth, placed chairs, wiped the dust from a large marble table that stood near it, and then left the room. Montagny and his family drew round the fire. Madame Montagny made several attempts at conversation, but his sullen answers repulsed her, while Emily sat endeavoring to acquire courage enough to speak to him. At length, in a tremulous voice, she said, May I ask, sir, the motive of this sudden journey? After a long pause, she recovered sufficient courage to repeat the question. It does not suit me to answer enquiries, said Montagny, nor does it become you to make them. Time may unfold them all but I desire I may be no further harassed, and I recommend it to you to retire to your chamber, and to endeavor to adopt a more rational conduct than that of yielding to fancies, and to a sensibility which, to call it by the gentlest name, is only a weakness. Emily rose to withdraw. Good night, madame, said she to her aunt, with an assumed composure, they could not disguise her emotion. Good night, my dear, said Madame Montagny, in a tone of kindness which her niece had never before heard from her, and the unexpected endearment brought tears to Emily's eyes. She curtsied to Montagny and was retiring. But you do not know the way to your chamber, said her aunt. Montagny called the servant who waited in the ante-room, and bade him send Madame Montagny's woman, with whom, in a few minutes, Emily withdrew. End of Volume 2, Chapter 5, Part A